I'm Carrie Miller. Thanks so much for catching my book interviews on the podcast. Each week we dip into our archives and we add a deep track. This week's Friday Big Books and Bold Ideas interview is with Dr. Morgan Levine. She's a research scientist working on sophisticated techniques for measuring how and why we age. But she's also a big believer in the tried and true methods of good nutrition and lots of exercise for healthy aging. Dan Butner makes the same argument in his Blue Zones books, and so we thought this was a natural pairing. Here's Dan Butner from 2015. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is NPR News. This morning, we're bringing you a conversation I had last month with Dan Butner at the Minneapolis Foundation's Face Forward Conference. Dan is an author, he's an endurance athlete, and he's known for his work on blue zones, the regions of the world where people live the longest, healthiest lives in the world. Dan has identified numerous blue zones around the world, and after researching what makes them unique, he started to create new blue zones in places like Iowa and Texas and even Minnesota. I wanted to know more about what makes these projects successful and if they can exist outside of small communities. So when we sat down, I asked him how effective blue zone creation was in areas with a truly diverse population. Very successful because when when um, you change a food policy that makes junk food harder to get and more expensive and, and uh, uh, healthy food easier and cheaper, it affects all social economic classes and it's uniform. But so where's the most diverse community you've gone into to, to do a blue zone? Well, uh, the beach cities is about 40% Asians and Hispanics and about 60% uh, white people or uh, people of European extraction. Um, Fort Worth is kind of equally as diverse. You know, I was thinking about this because you said Baton Rouge versus San Luis Obispo. I mean, Baton Rouge would be a real challenge yes. for this, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, the big opportunity, the way I look at it. But a big challenge, too, right? You... Yeah, the more unhealthy the area it is, the easier it is to get early wins, actually. Meaning? Meaning the, the, the kind of dumb policies. Like um, Spencer, Iowa, a very conservative place, uh, they had an ordinance that forbid farmers' markets and forbid gardens in people's own backyard. Often, it's simple policies like that that are easy to enact where you, where you achieve an early win. So if the policies are so simple, why don't more communities do it? I think they don't connect the dots between, first of all, they don't always have at their fingertips the best practices from around the world for the, to choose from. A lot of them are really low-hanging fruit. Uh, others require political ground cover. And um, I think what we do, because we're auditioning cities and before we come in, the mayor and the superintendent of schools and the head of the Chamber of Commerce all have to uh, agree. We get them all in the room, all these leaders, and we show them the policies and we let them rank them from the most effective and politically tenable, ones we can get done, to the least um, desirable. And with that mayor sitting in the room with all the other leaders if he or she sees that all the other stakeholders are nodding their heads saying yes, they know there's the political clout to get it done. You know, so obviously there's a self-selecting because you want, yes. the, you want the community to be on board. Yes. I, we intentionally, 
you know, we're just starting out with this right now. And if I went into a city who didn't believe in this and but desperately I, needed it, yeah. But there's a lot of cities who are ready and willing, like Albert Lee, Minnesota, who want it and who are ready for the change. So you want to start with those who are ready for the change and want it, prove success, measure it rigorously, then it's easier to spread it. But, uh, so let's come back to Baton Rouge. What would be the, as you say, opportunity, I say challenge? I mean, what, would, would a place like that really put the blue zone concept to its true test? Think of, think of Fort Worth, Texas. It's the beef yeah, capital of America. There. I know what it's, I a, know what it's, it's like. It's a lot like Baton Rouge, but uh, the mayor there, Betsy Price, uh, she has political clout, and she put her money where her mouth and said, we're going to get something done in this town. I actually sat there in um, the, the, we had all the leaders together. We had the head of Lockheed Martin, Bell Helicopter, and um, the uh, Chamber of Commerce, all very conservative, Betsy Price. And I kind of showed this presentation. And uh, afterwards, there was a silence. And then one of the executives, I won't say who does, he said, this looks a lot like nanny state to me. And then somebody else said, yeah, this looks like nanny state. And I listened to this for about 30 seconds. I said, fine, you guys aren't ready. You should go spend your money doing something else. And then there's this pause that lasted at infinity. And finally, the mayor said, no, I think there's enough Texas pride in this town, and we're going to get something done. And right there, all of a sudden, the political tide went to question, 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 that we're in, we're in, we're in. And we've been able to harness that for the last year and a half. I mean, I, I did wonder what you say when people say it looks like social engineering. And I was thinking about, you know, in a place like New York City, where the results would be, where the, the opportunities and the challenges are great, but you could see a large-scale result, Mayor Bloomberg couldn't even get a tax on soda 16 pop. 16-ounce soda. Passed, yeah. But the difference between... Bloomberg tried to railroad that in to people who didn't necessarily want it. Our approach is we come with a menu, and we say, you don't have to pick anything. Pick what's right for you. But we know that every one of the items that they would pick in their policy menu have a positive result. So you're not really inhibiting their freedom. You're working within, you're, you're working within uh, their choices. Understood. I guess I'm asking you to think outside of the cities that come to the blue zone and say, yes, we want it, because our health crisis is much larger than in these places that you're going to be able to turn around. Yeah, I'm very deliberate about this. I started at a, a small city and then went to a bigger city, then a bigger city. Now we're doing three whole states. And I'm not pretending that I necessarily have the answer for all of America, but I see it scaling, and I think eventually federal government's going to pay attention. Well, okay, it's so how does it scale then? Well, you start, you start changing state policies. Um, like, I'll give you an example. We know that if there are billboard signs that advertise junk food, the adjacent population has a, a higher obesity rate. So the fewer junk food advertising signs there are, you have it associated with lower rates of obesity. The state of Vermont prohibits signs completely. The state of Minnesota can do that. Drive down 35, up 35W towards the north, mm -hmm. and you tell me how much you enjoy the signs. Um, nobody would miss them, and that's something the, the state could do. Iowa, for example, we had all of these cities who were ready to go smoke-free, but the state law preempted it. So if the Iowa state law could, could allow cities to make their own decisions when it comes to smoking, 
uh, we could have gotten a lot more traction there than we did. So it's, it's going from small municipal to big municipal to state law, eventually federal law. I think there should be a soda tax, for example. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, so you look at Mexico. It's the only country in the world that has had the courage. Mexico. Yeah. They have a, they have a soda tax, and soda pop consumption has gone down by 10%. Soda pops are the number one source of refined sugar in the American diet right now. Every time your kid drinks a soda, he consumes about 10 or 11 teaspoons of sugar. You'd never put 10 or 11 teaspoons of sugar on your Wheaties or Cheerios, yet we drink them all the time. So by having a tax on, you see a population-wide impact, and it tends to actually impact the poorer people because they can less afford the extra money to pay for more expensive sodas. That's a strategy that would work across the board, but there's a, a food and beverage lobby that, you know, doesn't let it happen. It's, work, it's been instituted in Berkeley now, so we'll see how it works there. Well, Dan, what do you think of private sector companies uh, using, let's say, higher health insurance rates to encourage their employees to follow a lot of the tenants of the Blue Zones? You know, and then what do they do? You know, there's so many confusing diets out there that, um, you see, the problem with all this focus on, on healthcare, when you think about it, um, insurance companies and hospitals and doctors and pharmaceutical companies aren't really in the business of health. They're in the business of making sick people less sick. Nobody makes money if you stay healthy. So I don't think it's our doctors and, our, and, the, and the insurance companies um, though United Healthcare does it's very progressive thinking when it comes to it, I don't think we look to them for the answer because their economics are behind sickness, and we need to find areas where the economics is behind health. And I think, by the way, thank you. I'll take that. You know, I will say I don't have any skin in this game, but I've been following Target shift from uh, education to wellness, and they're really. Um, they influence employees, they influence uh, community, uh, our, the philanthropic community here, they influence the people who go buy in their stores, and they're really methodically going about trying to create a healthier environment. And I pay close attention to them. I'd look more to them than the health insurance companies to make a, a difference in health than just about anyone else. Yeah, I, I guess I was more asking about using what some people would think of as heavy-handed economic incentive to get people to do some of the stuff that they do in the blue zones, you know, because of the culture in which they, and to do things that you say city policy should be. You know, not everybody in that city agrees that they ought to pay a higher tax on soda, but somebody has decided, well, that's what it means for the common good. A company can do the same, right? That's what it means for the common good for our company, to have people that won't quit smoking or at, are at a certain BMI to pay more health insurance. So what's the question? Well, that, so <laughs> the question is, do you see a difference between the, policy, the, the policies that you endorse in a city and a state and, you know, the private market? No. I mean, a... a, a a company can adopt policies. Uh, Naples, for example, the healthcare system we work with there, the hospital system, this is a place where you're supposed to go get healthy. Most of the time, hospitals, they serve you just, you know, you get done with a, uh, 
a uh, heart, open heart surgery and they give you a burger. Uh, and there's sodas. This, this, um, this is actually a private business and they've gotten rid of all sugar sweetened beverages and they've gotten, ri- they've, uh, gotten rid of most of the animal products in the, uh, in the meals that they serve. And this is a, a private entity. You, I think you have to have the incentives at the point of the decision. Mm-hmm. So to know that, you know, you're staring at a candy bar and you know that actually in three months I'll pay less on my insurance, that's not going to work as well as if the candy bar is 50 cents more expensive at point of purchase. So okay. it can work both ways. A uh, question here from, um, from the audience. In your opinion... What's the single greatest challenge related to health and wellness that our community will face in the next 10 years? Well, it's probably food. You know, the, um, our food system here, and I don't badmouth anybody, we're, until about 1960, there wasn't enough calories in America to feed Americans, and it took American ingenuity, you know, the General Mills and the Cargills to create, to innovate, to create enough calories. But now we've just figured out how to take soybeans and wheat and corn and make them into cheap kind of empty calories. And it, it's, it's really, and now we have, you know, especially in our Earl Butts, we have a whole agricultural system that supports these grains and the current foods we have. It's shifting that uh, focus to grains and meat and dairy uh, to vegetables, and that's we have to change an entire system. It can't just be, you know, community gardens. The, uh, so the that's USDA. the greatest challenge is yeah, federal policy. And you're listening to my conversation with Dan Budner. He's the man behind the Blue Zones Project, which uh, identifies places around the world where people live long and healthy lives. In addition to sitting down with me, Dan also gave a keynote speech at the Minneapolis Foundation's Face Forward Conference. He started his remarks by listing the five original Blue Zones that he found. Sardinia, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, Icaria, Greece, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, and Loma Linda, California. So Dan talked about what made these places so remarkable. None of these blue zones where you see spry 80, 90-year-olds still standing on their head, did any of them ever try to live a long time? They never said at age 50, well, go darn it, I'm going to get on that longevity diet and live another 50 years. They never bought a treadmill or called that 800 number for a supplement. In all cases, longevity happened to them. It was something that was not pursued, it was something that ensued. And for me, that was a key insight when it comes to the secret to longevity and I think the future of community health. No matter where you go in the world, you see the same nine things happening over and over again. When it comes to physical activity, they really didn't exercise. In fact, exercise, by and large, has been a public health failure in America. Americans burn fewer than 100 calories a day engaged in exercise. Fewer than 15% of Americans get enough physical activity. It's not working for us. In blue zones, they move naturally. Their houses are deconvenienced. They walk to their friend's house. They walk to work. They have gardens. When they get together for fun, they're walking. They're moving about once every 20 minutes. They have the same stress as we do, but they have sacred daily rituals to to, uh, de-stress, to downshift. They pray, do ancestor veneration, they have happy hour. They have vocabulary for purpose. 
People who can articulate their sense of purpose live about eight years longer uh, than people who can't. Uh, mortality when you retire in this country is about three times higher than it is the last year of work. I believe that's because we lose our work-given purpose. Uh, when it comes to what they consume, most of you will like this. They drink a little bit, two to three glasses a day, but no, you can't save up all week long and have 14 on the weekend. Uh, eat mostly a plant-based diet. This newest book I wrote, The Blue Zone Solution, I worked with the University of Minnesota and distilled down 155 dietary surveys in all five blue zones over the last century. 90% of what the longest-lived people have eaten throughout their lives are plants. 65% comes from carbohydrates, very non-paleo. Whole grains, tubers, cornerstone of every longevity diet in the world is beans. They do eat meat, but only about five times a month. They snack on nuts, and they have little strategies to keep from overeating. They eat a huge breakfast. They tend to eat with their family. But they have strategies to keep from overeating. Their, their kitchens aren't full of, of uh, electronics to distract them from their meal at hand. Um, they put family first. They keep their aging parents nearby. They invest in their kids, and they invest in their spouses or their partners. That all conveys life expectancy. Uh, they belong to a faith, and they show up. That's worth four to 14 years of life expectancy. And they pay attention to who they hang out with. We now know that if your three best friends are obese and unhealthy, there's about a 150% better chance that you'll be overweight yourself. Drinking's contagious. Loneliness is contagious. Smoking's contagious. Um, so paying attention to who you're spending Tuesday nights with. Uh, curating that immediate social network of five or so friends for people whose idea of recreation is some kind of physical activity, who eat mostly plant-based, who are engaged with the world and who actually care about you. One of the, the best lasting strategies for longevity out there. It's not sexy, but it works. Uh, you look at these nine factors of longevity and you're probably shaking your head and saying, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But how do you get populations for doing it to do it long enough to make a difference? The average American could live 10 to 12 more good years if we maximized our life expectancy. Well, the 4% or so of the healthcare budget we spend on prevention is mostly spent on diets, exercise programs, and supplements. And on the surface, they seem like pretty good ideas. And the work in the short run, we spend a lot of money on these things, by the way. Um, but in the long run, they're universally failures. You get 100 people who start a diet today, you're going to lose 10% in three months. You're going to lose 90% in seven months. And with two years, within two years, you lose about 97%. Short-term success, long-term failure. There's not a diet in the history of the world that has worked for more than 5% of the people who started it two years later. Exercise programs, same way. We tend to start them with lots of zeal right after the holidays, but then within about nine months, we run out of gas. And even if I come back from Blue Zones with the supplement guaranteed to reverse longevity or reverse aging, Americans wouldn't take it long enough uh, to make a difference. So if that doesn't work, what does? How do you get people um, adopting healthy behaviors for long enough? Well, in 2008, I got another grant from National Geographic, and this time I scoured the world for research that of uh, places around the world that were unhealthy and got healthy. 
So essentially, public health initiatives that were targeted uh, chronic disease, heart disease, cancer, diabetes. And to my dismay, there were none in America. In fact, there were none in the world except for one. In the southeastern extreme of Finland, a province of 145,000 people, looks a lot like Minnesota. Women are strong, men are good-looking, children above the average type of people. Highest rate of cardiovascular disease in the world in 1972. Guys were dropping dead, rich white guys, dropping dead at age, seven, at age 55 from heart disease. And they managed to turn it around and sustain it for decades. And I studied this, and in 2008, I got the idea with a few other people to go out and try to create a blue zone in America. Uh, AARP uh, and United Healthcare funded it. Thank you. Uh, Terry Clark's in the audience here. Thank you again. I owe you a beer. But it struck off, we struck off to do something different than most health initiatives have done in the past. Most health initiatives, when you think of it, they try to get people on a diet, eat your veggies, and do the fun run, and, and they advertise to people. But this particular project ignored the individual. It basically acknowledged our genetic patrimony. We are all evolutionarily hardwired to crave fat, to crave sugar, to take rest whenever we can. And that is how we survived as a species for 25,000 generations. We evolved in, a, in an environment of scar scarcity and uh, difficulty, but now we live in this environment of ease and abundance to try to convince somebody to have the discipline or to remember long enough to do the right things that it's going to have an impact on their longevity. When you think of it as kind of folly, uh, instead of trying to change the individual, we change the environment. The North Karelia Project figured out that we, most people spend most of their lives within about five miles of their home, so we set off to optimize the life radius of people. Uh, make the healthy choice, not only the easy choice, but the unavoidable choice. So how do you do that? Well, we put together a team, and the team had three squads. One squad paid attention to the individual environment, yours and mine environment. We came up with checklists for the house and the kitchen to engineer out 250 calories of needless eating and engineer in about 150 uh, calories of mindless movement. Uh, we help people in these communities, the plan anyway, called for them to find other people want to change their health behaviors and form Moai-like social networks and then take some time with individuals to help them identify their purpose and put that purpose to work in volunteer organizations. Squad number two looked at all the places we spend our day in, whether it's a grocery store, a restaurant, our workplaces, our kids go to school, our faith-based communities. And we aggregated all the research on how to optimize the designs and set up nudges and defaults in all of these different places. We spend most of our day in some building. They all could be optimized. And then finally, and this according to the CDC, is the best, most cost-effective investment for making a community healthier. We paid attention to the policies. Do you live in a place like Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where 40% of people are obese and there is absolutely no limits on junk food advertising or how many fast food restaurants 
are in a square block downtown, or a place like San Luis Obispo, where a few years ago the mayor got together with city council and they proactively said, no, we're making this place healthier. They eliminated drive throughs and fast food restaurants. They shrunk the size of signs. They make billboards, uh, outlaw billboards downtown. Uh, they invested heavily in a farmer's market. Lo and behold, they have the lowest rates of obesity uh, in America. It's not because uh, they're better people with better diet programs. Uh, they, they change policies to optimize the food environment. Same with tobacco. Uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, I'm happy to say, and I know the Minneapolis Foundation supports a lot of their work. We're one of the best places in the country when it comes to a healthy, tobacco-free environment. Uh, and then the built environment. According to Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, if you live in a place where Parks are cleaned up, there are bike lanes, there's public transportation and sidewalks. The physical activity level of that place is 30% higher than a place you have to drive every place. We don't come in and tell city governments what to do. We come in with menus. We've aggregated all the best practices from places like Finland and San Luis Obispo and, quite honestly, Minneapolis, and we present it to our cities we work with like a menu. So you don't have to do any of this, but you have to do something. And you'd be surprised how even conservative cities will adopt policies that make their kids grow up more healthy. Can it actually work? Well, in 2009, we auditioned five cities. We wanted a city where the mayor was signed up and the CEOs and the superintendent of schools and enough people that we could get critical mass. Elbert Lee, Minnesota, stepped forward. 18,000 people, 90 miles south of here on 35W. And we didn't go in there bowling our way, saying this is what you're going to do, pontificating. We listened for three months. Uh, we have a guy on our team who's the world's, one of the world's top experts on uh, taking budgets and making cities walkable. We met with city council uh, and helped devise a plan so that every neighborhood had a vector to get downtown without cutting through traffic. All we had to do was connect three and a half miles of sidewalks. It wasn't very expensive. They wanted to widen their main street and bring more traffic in from the interstate. We said, really? Uh, we pointed out they have this gorgeous lake at the, at the edge of their downtown. You can kind of see it in the upper right-hand corner there of, this, uh, of their downtown here. Uh, but you couldn't get around it. Uh, with just a fraction of that street widening money, we convinced them to put a Lake of the Isles-like uh, trail around it. And lo and behold, that's packed with people 11 months out of the year. We don't have to give them a break on their insurance or a free t-shirt. We just make it easy. We got them to use a bunch of park land to create four community gardens. Almost every independent restaurant let our experts come in with the checklist to engineer out the 300 extra calories we consume every time we go out to eat. Uh, smaller plates, change the default instead of automatically getting the bread and butter when you sit down. Uh, you have to ask for it. Instead of automatically getting fries with your sandwich, you automatically get fruit. We change the adjectives on menus, which makes a huge difference. Do you know the adjective that most assures people won't order an entree? Yes, the healthy choice. <laughs> Let me tell you, nobody wants the damn healthy choice. When people go out to eat, they want to eat something good, something that sizzles. So we took the heart-healthy salad, and we called it the Italian Primavera salad, and sales went up by 25%. We didn't touch the price. 
We went into the hy chain there. They played along. They let us tag all the healthy foods so it was easy for mom to find it. Uh, we pioneered this idea of a healthy checkout lane where there's only healthy defaults. I'm very proud to say that. I've just read yesterday that Target's adopting this idea. And we changed the policies in schools. You know, everybody kind of focuses on school lunch with Jamie Oliver, but you know the policy that most determines how many calories your kid consumes at school? It's whether or not kids can eat in hallways and classrooms. If the answer to that question is yes, the BMI of that school is likely to be about 10% higher than the school that simply says no eating in classrooms and hallways. Very simple, costs nothing. We got 25% of the population to sign a personal pledge to do checklists in their homes, uh, to take a quick uh, assessment, Vitality Compass, we called it, to determine how long they're going to live so we can manage it. We brought experts into their kitchen, got, got them to get rid of their small plate, the big plates and trade them out for smaller plates. Uh, that occasions consuming fewer calories. Dig gardens in their backyard. Join Moais. We actually got 1,100 Minnesotans to join a Moai, like those old ladies who argue about the hot guy. Uh, it actually works, by the way. We, we asked them to walk or to eat plant-based foods for 10 weeks together, and you'd be shocked. Six, uh, six years later, 60% of the people are still together. And then gave everybody a purpose workshop and got them involved with uh, volunteering. Not everybody, but about 25% of the population. In about a year and a half, we let this idea bake. Life expectancy went up by three years. They lost over two tons, and where the rubber really hit the road, we saw a 40% drop in health care costs for city workers. All of a sudden, people start paying attention. Uh, ABC was down there, USA Today, NBC Nightly News, Carrie Miller. <laughs> Uh, because we're spending so much money on health care in this country, and uh, we managed to not just come in with this uh, frothy idea, but actually changing the environment and changing the culture in a way that's lasted to date seven years. After Albert Lee's story got out there, our phone started ringing, 55 other cities applied. We ended up picking a very different culture, the beach cities of, of Los Angeles, uh, very different challenges, but we showed up with the exact same playbook. We're not here to change people in the cities. We're here to change your environment. There the problem is traffic. Too many people drive to their next-door neighbors. So we took our little team of experts, and we took the three mayors and the city councils, and we walked them through their streets. And we pointed out what they look like now, and then we showed them what it could look like. And you know, when you show policymakers a vision that they can wrap their brains around, it's a lot easier to get them to change the laws and ordinances so the healthy choice is easier. In the case of the beach cities, we got them to agree to something called the complete streets policy. Now every new street in this area of Los Angeles has to be built for a bike lane, sidewalks, trees, and public transportation. How many of you guys walked to school when you were kids? Raise your hand. Almost all of you. Now, how many of you guys, how, your, how many, your kids walk to school? How many of your kids walk to school? Yeah, I see about 10 hands. 1970, over half American kids walked to school. Now, it's uh, down to fewer than about 10%. In the beach cities of Los Angeles, none of the kids in the 13 school walk to school. And they don't have to deal with our winters. 
We went in and we organized these uh, walking school buses, created safe routes to schools so parents felt okay about the traffic. Now today, about 32% of kids are walking to school. Free physical activity. You don't have to pay for a gym class. About three miles a week, we figure. Uh, most kids in the beach cities did not know that bananas grew on, sea, on trees. They could not correctly identify a radish. So as part of our program in schools, we got kids feeling, smelling, and then ultimately tasting vegetables for the first time, uh, growing uh, gardens in their schools, which is easy to do, uh, and actually creating a farmer's market where kids got involved with it. In their classrooms, we put vegetables at the front of the lines, and we got the um, uh, lunch ladies to take things like baked sweet potatoes and fruit spears and dress them up so it looked like fast food. I tricked them into eating them. But, uh, and then we got them to pass an ordinance, no junk food within a thousand feet of schools. And we actually got two of these uh, towns, Hermosa Beach and Manhattan Beach, to go completely smoke-free. Took us four years to do it, but Gallup measured at the very beginning and measured four years later, and lo and behold, smoking down 30%. That's going to save tens of millions of dollars. Average BMI of the average person is down 14%. There are 1,900 fewer people. And what I'm most proud of, when we started, childhood obesity rate was 18%. Now it's 9%, four years later. Thank you. I'm very proud. So from there, it was back to the Midwest, the Blue Cross Blue Shield plant in Iowa wanted us to blue zone the pork state. There are six pigs in Iowa for every human, so that was going to be a formidable challenge. We auditioned 90 cities and picked uh, 11 of them, and it worked the same way. We had to do this at a state level, and probably most counterintuitively than uh, the reddest city of the reddest state in America, uh, Fort Worth, signed on. Um, and I'm very proud, just this week, the stockyards, these famous beef stockyards, there's actually a vegetarian restaurant there now. <laughs> so progress. We're now in uh, 27 uh, cities nationwide um, uh, because it works. Um, it's, um, it takes a different approach. It takes the ideas that we observed in places like Sardinia and Okinawa uh, and simply move the environment or move the components of the environments to uh, an American uh, context. I don't have to tell this audience that our big health problems for this country, and a little less so Minnesota, but nevertheless, um, we have a long way to go. Uh, we spend about $2.1 trillion a year on health care. Uh, about 70% of Americans are overweight or obese. 50% uh, of us are on our way to diabetes or already there. And as Leisha pointed out, for the first time in living history, life expectancy of our kids is expected to be as much as five years lower than our life expectancy. Is that because we're stupid? Or we lack discipline? Or we love our kids less than our parents loved us? No. It's because the environment has changed. You can't walk through an airport, or go buy cough medicine, or drive to the mall without getting routed by a gauntlet of fast food and salty snacks and Snickers bars and, and Coca-Colas. 
Individual responsibility is a good thing. Discipline's a good thing. I like to think I have discipline, but discipline is a muscle, and muscles fatigue, and eventually your genes are going to take over. The secret to longevity, whether it's in your own lives, the lives of Minneapolis, people in Minneapolis, or in your workplace, or in your school, rests squarely with changing the environment. I argue all we have to do is pay attention for a change of what is working elsewhere outside of America and import it back in. But it boils down to making the healthy choice, not only the easy choice, that's a cliche these days, but making it the unavoidable choice. That is author and athlete Dan Buettner speaking at last month's Minneapolis Foundation's Face Forward Conference.